Leslie Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to tell stories of people performing random acts of kindness. We often have that segment here on our show, and very often it's produced and wrapped up and narrated. But we felt like this story needed more personal attention. Not that the others aren't personal, but this one, we just wanted to talk to the parties and have you hear this story yourselves from them and Diazerome suffers from cerebral palsy, a movement condition that makes it very hard for her to walk on her own. So six fraternity brothers from the University of Central Arkansas decided to be her legs for a day. They carried her up a thousand-foot mountain. They each took turns giving her piggyback rides until they got to the top. Diage is here with us today to talk about this experience, and also one of the brothers, one of those fraternity brothers, Benji Richards, thank you both for joining us. You're welcome. You're so welcome, man. You bet. And Diaja, let's start with you. Um, You obviously wanted to see the top of this mountain. You wanted to get to the top. Why did you want to do that and talk about what what it felt like to get this offer from these from these fraternity boys? You know, I just seen all the pictures. You know, the people locally around um, Arkansas and Conway. <laughs> I've just seen all the pictures on Instagram, you know, Facebook, everybody, the joys of getting to the top, you know. That was something I wanted to do. Um, and I was just like, yeah, I'm going to do this. Like, nothing's going to stop me from, um, from doing this and something that I want to do just because I have a disability doesn't mean that I can't do something that everybody else does. And just to get the opportunity from these guys to climb this mountain, I was overjoyed. I was like, yeah, man, let's do it. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, man, let's do it. Did you know these uh, fraternity brothers? Yes. Um, Actually, um, my... um, I met them through, like, a wiffle ball tournament that we had. Um, it was pretty cool. Um, in the middle, like, um, I'm in the middle team with them, and we just played softball. And uh, that was how we met. And, I, of course, I had seen them around campus and things like that. So I was just like, yeah, man, I already know these guys, and I've developed some trust, so why not? Let's do it. Yeah, you got to have some trust in somebody who's carrying you up a mountain, Diaja. And uh, Benji, Benji, talk about uh, how you ca- had come to know Diaja, uh, and talk a bit about uh, your fraternity as well and the brothers and how this idea came to fruition. Um, well, we, like Diaja said, we met her through um, with, uh, some intramurals, uh, a co-rec wiffle ball tournament we had on our campus, um, and so our fraternity was teamed up with her sorority, and... Um, we uh, and Diaja was actually on our team, and so she pulled up in her wheelchair and was even batting uh, on the team. So that that's how we actually met her, and so we we're all kind of impressed. We're like, okay, you know, like she's not going to let anything stop her. Um, now, how the idea came about is we had actually seen a chapter for a different fraternity do this up in the Northeast. Um, there was a post that had been shared where they had a brother that also had um, cerebral palsy, and they carried him. And I can't remember if the idea started with myself or um, Cesar Ramirez, but one of us was just like, hey, what if we did this? And then uh, I remember pushing the idea to um, some of the members that I knew, 
in her sorority, and eventually just they got the baby D, and she was like, yeah, let's do it. So we set up a time to go. And we love doing these segments because, well, the media loves to cast millennials in a certain light, young people in a certain light, and I live in a college town, and I've never been more impressed by a generation and I hate seeing older people looking at younger people and saying, ah, back when we were better kids, life was better, and you all stink. I mean, that's just what older people always do to younger people. But I've witnessed quite the opposite. And the same with fraternities, who especially after that terrible UVA story at the Rolling Stone, sort of cast all fraternities as just, well, something they're not. And talk a little bit about uh, Diaja, the, your experience with this fraternity and these brothers, because my goodness, what a story. And how did, how did it make you feel? And then how did you set about going to do this, Diaja? Um, it made me feel awesome. You know, just that um, a group of guys, you know, just wanted to do this for me out of, out of the compassion of their hearts. You know, it's, um, I was, I posted on Facebook yesterday. I was like, it's the smallest things in life um, that make individuals happy and bring about the greatest amounts of happiness <laughs> so just for these guys to like you know spend some time out of their day to actually you know help this little this little goal of mine this little dream of mine to come true and you know um, give away some um some sweat and some muscle <laughs> to do this for me it was just awesome i can't Words can't even describe. When I got to the top, I was like, "Wow!" And Benji, it's a whole nother, it's a whole nother ball game up there. It is, and you know, you said something so wonderful, and that is, in the end, it's something we try and talk about regularly on this show. If you want to really go after social justice in this country, do something really radical. Help a total stranger. Do something wonderful and beautiful for another person. And if we all did that every day, we would have social justice coming at us so darn fast. So darn fast in every way, shape, and form. Benji, talk about how hard it was, or not hard it was, to enlist a bunch of guys to do this. Give me just a short answer here. We're going to come back on the other side of the break and then talk about the actual walk. Um, honestly, it was really simple. I just mentioned to a few of the guys, and they said, let's do it. Uh, there wasn't really any challenge to it. Um, so I was like, hey, we're going to carry the uh, Aja up this mountain. And they're like, all right, let's go. Just tell me in time. Well, hold that thought. And by the way, that's why I knew it would be a short answer, because that's the American spirit, frankly. There's no committees. There's no Grand Cuba calling the shots. A couple of guys go, hey, let's help this beautiful young lady. Let's let her live her dream. And you just went and did it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the story of a fraternity brother and a sorority sister, and these brothers and sisters coming together to achieve a dream. Well, actually, a whole bunch of dreams, actually. Because when we live other people's dreams, through them and with them, we live our own. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We're talking to Benji Richards, 
and Diaja Romes. And this is a story from the University of Central Arkansas. A young lady with cerebral palsy wanted to climb a mountaintop. And some fraternity brothers said, what the heck, let's do this. And so they did it. And Benji, I want to go to you. First of all, what's the name of your fraternity? Give a shout out to the fraternity. I know that matters a lot to y'all. And then what did you what did you do? Talk about what steps you took and then talk about this climb. Um, well, I'm a part of Phi Gamma Delta, or uh, Fiji, um, as we're commonly known as, um, at University of Central Arkansas. And um, in terms of the steps that we took to make it happen, um, really, we, we set a time and a date to go and meet there, and like I collected a few of the guys. Um, the only really outside planning we did was we spent a lot of time discussing how we were going to carry Diaja. Um there was, that was an interesting discussion. We went through different things about trying to figure out how to like bring her to our back and finally ended up settling on just, we'll just piggyback ride her the entire way up. So, or give her a piggyback ride the entire way up. And so what did you do? Switch, switch up, just go from guy to guy. How did you do it? Um, yeah, so we would just, uh, I think I took the first leg and you just start going right up the mountain. Um, and then, Honestly, a lot of us were football players, so this kind of was similar to us as if we were just doing, we were back in uh, the football team just working out doing lunges, but after a while we would, you know, kind of wear out and need a break. We would find a, like a tall standing rock that we could set her on where we wouldn't have to squat down and set her on the ground, and then we would just kind of trade her around like that. And so you, you had how many fellas with you on this walk? I want to say about six. About six. And again, all members of Fiji as well, correct? Yeah. Great. And Diaja, so you, you, get the, you get the call from these guys, and then you realize you're going to be piggybacked up a mountain. Were you a little worried at first? Um, honestly, um, just the type of person I am, I was like, nah, man, um, I'm not worried at all. Of course, there were a couple times where I was like, Oh crap! I might like we might go down, but we're going down together. Yep, so, you're going down together. <laughs> That's some cool. of the rocks were, were slippery, but I was like, no man, we're a team. We got this. If if one goes down, we all go down. And and let's talk about as you're going up that mountain and you're getting up to the top. Uh, talk about that moment when you get to the top of the mountain, Diasha. Uh, we were about a couple feet away from the top, and I was. I was getting anxious. I was like, man, is it really like the pictures? Like, is everybody just hyping this up for no reason? But um, when we got to the top, you know, it was, it was pretty hot because we, we um, started coming up in the middle of the day but, um, and all sweating and stuff. But I was like, wow, the sky is like limitless up here. I feel like I can literally do anything from the top of this mountain. I could scream at the top of my lungs and, like, nobody, like, the sky was listening, you know? It's kind of like when land meets the sky, you didn't you didn't really know where the um, the line was drawn. That's beautiful. So awesome. That's beautiful. You have, and if you could, we'd love to have you send a, a, I'm sure you took some pictures. Send them to our team here, and we'll post them up on the website. Uh, because we can't wait to see them. And so, Benji, you, you, you get up to the top of the mountain. You've never climbed a mountain with a person on your back before. How did it make you feel? Because, I, I, you know, we have the deep feeling on this show that when you do well for others, 
uh, it, it makes you feel better than doing for yourself. Yeah, uh, it was definitely um, pretty exhilarating. Uh, it was really rewarding um, to get her all the way up there. She was really excited. We were a little tired, um, honestly. But, uh, you know, getting up there, you kind of, we hit our second win. We got that, sec- uh, that rush of energy because um, Daza was so um, excited to be up there and, you know, she, you, you're listening to her talk about what it was like and trying to describe it, and that you can imagine that her physical reaction of her just being like, oh, look at all this, it's so cool. Um, so, yeah, it was definitely a very rewarding experience being able to get her up there. Now, I heard you guys are planning to do this again. Yes, so we've, we've actually already taken her on two trips since. Um, we were trying to plan one this December, but uh, everyone's back home, so it made it a little difficult. Um, but we actually went to Petty Jean State Park, um, and that's a park here that has a, a waterfall. Um, and we actually got her in the waterfall because she said she wanted to be in it. So that was it involved um, two of us putting her in a chair and swimming her across a pool to get her to the waterfall. Um, and then we took her to Mount Magazine and we hiked her up to the highest or the tallest elevation um, in the state of Arkansas, also. Oh, so you got yourself a real hiking partner there, don't you? Yeah. And, and, and uh, Diaja, for all the folks who, who and we, we do this often here on the show, talk about folks with disabilities, because we, we, we think and deeply believe that all people are children of God and that, well, you know, there's nothing anyone can, can or can't do except what's in their own mind. Talk to all the folks listening to may have, who may have relatives who have cerebral palsy, or suffer from some other uh, 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 some other uh, calamity that occurred early in their life, but that they overcame. That they overcame. Talk about them, Talk to them directly about that, Diaja, if you could. Yeah, you guys. Uh, it can be hard sometimes, you know, um, having a disability and getting um, stereotyped. Oh, you can't do this, or you can't do that. Well, I'm living, breathing proof. Um, that they, the disabled are indeed able and can achieve, achieve great things if you just put your mind to it and, you know, grit and bear it and get down and actually do what you want to do, put those people wrong and, um, you know, just have fun. Um, you know, having a disability has its ups, has its downs, but at the end of the day, you just have to believe that you really want to do something and have the diligence to get it done and have fun, you know. It's all about the happiness in life and getting um, getting as much of it as you can out of life. I mean, because life is short. You can't really wait around um, for someone to do something for you. you got to get out and do it if you really want it. Um, just go for it, man. Yeah, we think here, and we often bump into what I call the bigotry of low expectations, and that is the second somebody has some kind of problem, we set the bar lower on those people, and that's the worst thing to do to folks. Um, And you have set the bar high on yourself, Diaja, and I'm so happy that you not only not see yourself as a victim, but that you are going to live a beautiful and valuable life. And Benji... Talk about what this has done for the fraternity uh, and what it's done for you personally. I, I'd, I'd love to get that, that angle of this story. Um, I definitely think for the fraternity it became a point of pride. Um, different guys have been 
involved in everything. Um, I know, for example, when we did the Pettyjean trip and a bunch of guys realized they couldn't get off work to make it, um, a lot of guys got uh, upset about it. Um, and so it's definitely become something that's like when we can get enough guys to actually plan a sufficient trip, um, they get excited about it. Um, so that's uh, been pretty great. What, and what was the second question? And for you, what did it do for you personally in terms of uh, doing this kind of, just performing this kind of just act of kindness? Um, well, for, for me personally, it was just uh, rewarding. Um, like I said, taking her up there and seeing her get really excited. But um, I think something else that happened um, was after the story went, uh, the story got some attention. Um, and after that happened, um, I uh, was actually receiving emails from uh, graduate brothers or alumni of our fraternity that have um, daughters or sons with cerebral palsy, and they were telling me how they appreciate this, how it means a lot. Um, I've actually met a graduate brother here in the Little Rock area um, that has a daughter with cerebral palsy, and he just talked about how um, it really means a lot, and it really sticks to what our fraternity is supposed to be when we do things like this. So um, to me, it's meant quite a bit. Well, what a great story, and thank you, Diaja, for coming on, and thank you, Benji, as well. It's our random act of kindness story of the week, and we do these every week, and this is as good as it gets. And for anybody who's listening and has an idea or a judgment about this generation, I promise you there are stories after stories. I know here at Ole Miss, I watch what the young people do in terms of charity drives, raising money for, for, for the poor, raising money for kids, teaching literacy. I'm humbled to see those, those young people do what they do. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And again, thank you, Benji. Thank you, Diaja, for joining us. You're welcome. You're welcome. You bet, and uh, Godspeed to both of you. And by the way, if you want to hear all that we do here on Our American Stories, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our Turning Point series, where we hear from both famous and ordinary folks about turning points in their lives, what it was, what came before it, what came after it, and where they are now. And today we're joined by Mark Johnson, who was a fundraising executive for the United Way, and one day decided to become a cop. And he was 50, 50 years old at this turning point. Mark Thanks so much for being here. My pleasure, Lee. Hey, Mark, before we get into your turning point, we ask every guest about their childhood. How did your parents and your community shape you, if at all? Where were you originally born, and where did you spend the greater part of your childhood? Well, I, was, uh, I spent the greater part of my childhood in uh, Luling, Louisiana, but I was born in Kansas City, Missouri, in a home for unwed mothers, and I was adopted by my parents who moved me to Luling, Louisiana, where they resided. And I, I 
spent five years of my life in Luling, where I got very fond memories of the Deep South. And then we moved to St. Louis when my father got a promotion, and I graduated high school from St. Louis. And then from there, you you ended up being a fundraising executive for the United Way. Uh, right. How did you find your way there? And talk about that journey. Well, I went to the University of Colorado in Boulder, and I majored in English um, with, uh, I don't know, a fantasy, boyish fantasy of writing the great American novel and all that, blah, blah, blah. And uh, found when I got out of, uh, of college that... Uh, a degree in English didn't really do much for my uh, employability. And right. So I, I drove a cab in Denver. I drove a truck, ended up in Colorado Springs, and uh, uh, I was uh, I was a salesman basically with a two-state territory, uh, selling French's mustard and other French's products uh, to grocery stores and supermarket chains, and. Uh, I didn't really enjoy it much. Uh, I had to be on the road all week and only home on weekends. And uh, so I, I started looking for something closer. And uh, there was an opening at the United Way. I had also done some freelance writing for the local newspapers uh, during my uh, sales career. And uh, the, the local uh, newspapers in Colorado Springs included the Pro Rodeo Sports News. So I covered rodeos and interviewed rodeo cowboys. But that wasn't very... Uh, uh, stable income. And so I was looking for something that was a real job with a paycheck and an office and that sort of thing. And there was an opening for a public relations director for the United Way, the Pikes Peak United Way. And uh, to my shock, I was hired. Um, and so that started my, my career with United Way. I didn't even, I had always thought mistakenly that United Way was all run by volunteers. It shocked me that they actually have a bare bones uh, full-time professional staff to to run the campaigns, and uh, it's a year-round job. But uh, that's how I came to the field, and after seven years at the Pikes Peak United Way, my my boss, who was also my mentor, said, I'm going to push you out of the nest. You're ready to run your own United Way. So I activated my my file with the United Way of America, and they hooked me up with uh, Waukesha, Wisconsin, where there was a vacancy for an executive director of the Waukesha County United Way. And I went there uh, and uh, worked for seven years. And I still had kind of a yearning for the Deep South because of those fond memories of my early childhood. And also the brutal winters in Wisconsin had something to do with that yearning, I think. And uh, so uh, there came an opening for an executive director of the United Way of Southwest Alabama in Mobile, Alabama. And I came down for an interview. They offered me a job, and I thought... This, this is the job, and I, I moved down with my family from uh, Wisconsin to Mobile, Alabama. I arrived here in 1995. You'd been up there in, in, in Waukesha, and you'd been up in, and you'd been in Colorado as well, but there was this poll. What was it, Mark? What do you think it was? Well, uh, part of it was the, uh, uh, the diversity of the city of Mobile. Uh, I lived in Waukesha County, which is about uh, 95% white, and the 5% is... Uh, Hispanic, and so, and then you go you go twenty minutes to the to the east, and you're in Milwaukee County, and it, there's it's very diverse, very black, but it's ghettoized. And I remembered from my my earliest memories in the South, in Luling, Louisiana, just outside of New Orleans, that there we were living cheek by jowl uh, with black folks, and 
and and that wasn't the way it was up in Wisconsin. And so, you know, I got to admit, my mama read me Uncle Remus stories uh, for bedtime, and that was kind of my image of the South. All the Hollywood stuff I knew firsthand was was bogus, the Mississippi burnings and all of that stuff. And so I wanted to get back to a community that was uh, more diverse than Waukesha, Wisconsin, and had uh, uh, gentler rhythms and uh, uh, just a more uh, peaceful kind of uh, existence. And so that's really what drew me to the South, the diversity, the food, the culture, the music, the literature, uh, all kind of conspired to, to lure me back to the Deep South, and I've never regretted it. Well, talk about this tug towards being a cop and away from this being an executive at the United Way. What caused you to leave the United Way? Well, uh, I had been in it for counting the seven years in uh, Mobile. I had been a United Way executive for uh, 22 years and uh, had had a lot of success, found it very gratifying, uh, raised uh, over $100 million in the three different communities I had served um, but uh, something about turning 50, I don't know. I, I looked back on my life, and I thought, um, how much different? I've raised $100 million, but how much difference in those communities did the $100 million do? And by all the measures that I had at, at hand as a United Way exec on, uh, you know, uh, teen pregnancy and domestic violence and poverty and illiteracy and all those things that we raise money to try to alleviate, I didn't see a whole lot of progress in any of the communities I had served. And I really wanted something that was less abstract than raising money and funding agencies and programs. Uh, I wanted something that was more hands-on where I could actually make a difference and see the results. And I could not come up with anything more hands-on than being a cop. And I'd always... You know, I had that little boy fantasy of being a policeman uh, that had always been in the back of my mind. But as I grew older and had a family, I realized there's no way I can uh, raise a couple of kids and put them through college on a cop's pay. And uh, so I didn't do it. But then I was 50. My kids were out of college. Their college was paid for. The house we had was paid for. And I thought, you know, I might be able to sustain the cut and pay and still become a cop if I'm not too old. So I happened to know the chief of police because he had been part of the United Way campaign, uh, volunteer campaign uh, group. And uh, so I went by police headquarters one day and talked to the chief and said, you know, I'm thinking of a career change. And he said, great, what are you thinking of? And I said, I'm thinking of your career. And uh, he said, really? I said, my question is, am I too old? And he said, well, no, you look like you're pretty fit. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you can pass the physical, I, I think you probably would make a pretty decent cop. Why don't you give it a try? So I, uh, quit my job at the United Way and, uh, put my name in the hat for the upcoming police academy. And that started the whole process of, uh, months of testing and background checks and physicals and all of that. And I hedged my bets, uh, thinking that just in case I don't get on with the Mobile Police Department, I have family out in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and so does my wife. So I went out to Albuquerque and also applied with the Albuquerque PD and the uh, Bernalillo County Sheriff's Office out there. Mark, hold that thought. When we come back, more with Mark Johnson, author 
of Apprehensions and Convictions, Adventures of a 50-Year-Old Rookie Cop. We'll hear more about fulfilling his boyhood dream of becoming a cop after this short break. This is Our American Stories. American Stories, and we're back with Mark Johnson, who decided as a 50-year-old that being a fundraising executive was just too abstract, and so he applied to become a rookie cop. Mark, you just told us how you applied to the department near your home in Mobile, Alabama, and also hedged your bets by applying to the Albuquerque Police Department way out west, where you just happen to have family. Tell us what happened next. So I started these two processes side by side had to make about three or four trips out to Albuquerque, and uh, they moved a little bit faster than Mobile does, which is no surprise if you know the Deep South. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got to the end of the process in Albuquerque before I had gotten to the end of the process in Mobile. And the end of the process in both departments is uh, the, the shrink who kind of does the last screening of your psychological profile side whether or not you would be fit for law enforcement. And that's where I, I uh, uh, the harsh reality of being 50 years old with a resume that doesn't look like a typical cop's resume uh, pretty much uh, came in the way of my dreams of law enforcement, at least in New Mexico, uh, because the lady shrink basically informed me that, uh, which I already knew, she said, you know, social work is not the same thing as police work. And I said, yes, I know that. She said, you really don't have any of the qualifications we're looking for. Most cops are former military, uh, et cetera. And I said, yeah, but I think I think I have something to offer the police department. And she said, well, uh, have you seen the studies that I have that show that officers who come to the job with a view that it's primarily service rather than primarily law enforcement uh, are three times more likely to be injured or killed on the job than the ones who view it as primarily enforcement? And I said, no, I hadn't seen that stat, but I, I didn't think that was going to happen to me. And she said, well, I, I think either you would be injured or killed on the job because of your social work outlook, or you would be bored with it and you would quit before we could recover the cost of training you. So I can't, I can't recommend that you be a part of the next class. And that was a long, discouraged drive back from Albuquerque to Mobile. I bet. I bet. I was but- thinking, boy, have I done a... Have I, is this a really dumb career move or what? Indeed. And by the way, just going backwards just a second, when you quit the United Way, you didn't consult with your bride. Uh, how did she take this move? Because this ultimately, when you finally do land this job in uh, close to home, uh, you're going to get quite a pay cut from the former job. How did your bride take the news? Uh, not well. Not well. Uh, she was furious, I guess would be the best word. She... Uh, 
we talked about the cut and pay and I, you know, I went over our savings and investments and all of that and convinced her that we would be all right with the cut and pay. And, uh, she said, well, what about the, the cut in social status? I mean, you're going to be in a uniform and all of your peers are going to be 25 to 30 years old. Uh, do you think any of our friends are going to want to associate with a guy who does that for a living? And, I said, well, you know, our real friends will stick with us. Yep. And that, that didn't matter. Uh, but the main thing that bothered her was the safety issue. She yeah. thought, she said, you know, you're 50 years old. I know you're in good shape. But, uh, you know, don't take this wrong, honey, but you're not a natural warrior. And, <laughs> and she, she knew me. She knew me. I had never won a fight. I've only been in three or four in my whole life, and I always lost. <laughs> and uh, I said, but that's that's not an issue. They, that's what the academy's for. They they teach you all that stuff. And she right. said, I don't know. I don't know. This doesn't sound good. And besides that, you're not living up to your potential. I mean, you. She said, you can you can raise money. You can persuade people. You can write. You can do lots of things that will never get used as a cop. And I think you're uh, you're not living up to your potential. You're not being a good steward of the gifts you've been given. And that one cut the deepest. And uh, really disturbed me. Uh, but the fact is, I finally decided that uh, I needed to do this, and so I did. And only yeah. one person can lead a life that's our own, and that's us. So in the end, right. our loved ones just have to get used to what we're going to do and that's ultimately right. rally around it or, well, just complain a lot. <laughs> yeah, and she did. She did a lot of the complaining, but uh, uh, she eventually uh, came to see who, what I was about and why I wanted to do it and how much the job challenged and stimulated me and satisfied me. Uh, it really, it was a rebirth for me. Oh, and that's great. And then ultimately when she sees that her husband's reborn, she's got to perhaps reevaluate her initial assessment of the matter. By the way, the other recruits called you Pawpaw, uh, yeah. which is interesting, but yet at the same time, well, they had to be looking at you as a, as a guy who'd been around the block as well. Tell us about your first night in a patrol car with your field training officer. What did he tell you? Well, he said, uh, he said, just first of all, forget everything they taught you in the academy. It doesn't really apply here on the streets, which is uh, completely different. And uh, just keep your mouth shut and don't embarrass me. Um, and... Uh, so uh, I did that. He said, I don't know why you would ever give up the job you had and the status you had to work for this damn department uh, doing this job. But, uh, you know, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll be living with you for a month now and just, uh, just watch what I do and do what I do, and, uh, and maybe you'll survive. And this guy was, I don't know, in his early 30s. He's an ex-Marine, and... Uh, uh, you know, it was uh, it was hard to uh, to keep uh, my mouth shut a lot because his idea of policing and my idea of policing were completely different. Well, and that that happens in life and every and every kind of work. I want to read yes. something from your book, uh, and okay. this is from Apprehensions and Convictions: Adventures of a Fifty-Year-Old Rookie Cop. I was starting to believe the old saying about police work: ninety percent boredom and ten percent terror. I was craving the terror and thinking maybe this really was a dumb career move after all. Talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we spent the first few days uh, uh, doing traffic, uh, stopping speeders or people whose uh, license tag was out of date or whatever, and it was really dull. Uh, and uh, 
So I was thinking, uh, you know, if, if this is what I'm going to be doing, uh, this is not exactly what I signed on for. I thought I was going to be helping people, not writing tickets for speeders. And, but that's what my, my FTO liked to do. And he explained to me that uh, traffic stops is one way we apprehend more serious criminals because uh, they, they do a minor traffic infraction and we can maybe catch guys that way. But uh, all we were doing was writing tickets, and I just thought, wow, this was, this was not exactly what I, what I was looking for. And that all changed when uh, we got our first hot call, and it was a domestic dispute. And uh, that's when I got a real taste of what police work was like and the new world I had stepped into. And here's something you told us in the pre-interview. Quote, most rewarding is helping in a hands-on way. When a drunk dad topped over the Christmas tree, beat the mom, the kids are screaming, and to be able to defuse a situation like that just feels great. As we close things out, Mark, talk about that quote and what you really learned and what you really got uh, from this great and really pretty precipitous career change. Well, uh, what I really learned and what I really got was way more than I bargained for. I, I saw, I thought I had street smarts because it, I had visited a lot of our United Way agencies, which are in tough neighborhoods. Uh, so I thought I knew my way around in the bad parts of town, but I had never really been in people's homes, certainly not in the middle of a domestic dispute. And the kind of tragedies that I saw, the screaming children, the bloodied wives, the Christmas trees knocked over, and the unrepentant and uh, hostile uh, uh, batterers, uh, that was a shock. And I came to it with this social worker pros- uh, perspective where I-, I used to carry United Way brochures, and I would, I would talk to the guy who had just beat up his wife and say, you know, I can get you into an anger management class, and it's, a, it's no fees, a sliding fee scale, whatever you can afford, and, and blah, blah, blah. And he would look at me, and my fellow cops would look at me, and the battered wife would look at me like I was from another planet. Um, they, they weren't interested in uh, those kinds of uh, approaches. They wanted me, uh, they wanted me to remove the threat. That was what I was paid to do, was eliminate the threat and bring, a, bring justice to the scene. And, and here I was trying to work as a social worker in a, in a police uniform. And uh, I was disabused of that fantasy in pretty short order in the first year that I was on the streets and realized that, that sometimes, uh, you know, an intervention or a new agency or a program is not really going to do anything, and you've got to put the cuffs on somebody and take him to jail because that's really all you can do. But that's good enough for a battered wife and terrorized children on Christmas morning. You bet. It's, in fact, it's all they need. And you're retired now, Mark. Yes. What do you do with your time and do you ever miss it? That is not the United Way executive position, but do you ever miss being a cop? Absolutely. Every time I see a cop with his lights and sirens going, I wish I could get in the chase. Um, uh, but I'm too old for it. And that, that realization came to me uh, after my 12th year as a cop and realized that uh, not only was I maybe not up to snuff just for my own safety, but for the guys I worked with, my reactions weren't as quick and my memory wasn't as sharp. And so it was time to hang it up. But I still miss it, and I keep in touch with all my buddies back at the precinct. Well, Mark, thanks so much for joining us on this Turning Point series. We've been talking to Mark Johnson, the United Way executive turned 50-year-old cop, also the author of Apprehensions and Convictions, Adventions, Adventures of a 50-Year-Old Rookie Cop. Mark Johnson, thanks so much for joining us. 
Thank you much, Lee. You bet. You bet. And this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from history to business, love, death, and faith, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll listen, we'll put them together, we'll produce them, and we'll put them right up on the air, because they're some of our favorite stories. Your stories are the hour in Our American Stories. And we love doing a series that we recurrently do here called the American Dreamer Series. And that's sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network who fight for public policy that helps turn small businesses into bigger ones. And now our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of one of their members. Rick Jackson grew up without a father. I grew up in Atlanta, in the slums of Atlanta. My mother was an alcoholic. She was just not capable of taking care of me. I had over seven stepfathers, supposedly stepfathers. I've seen a lot of very negative things from fights, people cutting each other, men abusing my mom physically, beating her, her beating other people. I came home one night and there were blood all over the walls where my mom had broken a bottle and cut one of my stepfather's arm where it was bleeding everywhere. For most people, it would be a very traumatic type of environment. And it was even more traumatic. Rick left out most of what he was subjected to, including watching his mom be arrested naked with all of his friends seeing it too and her handing him the keys to drive them home over 100 times by the time he was 13. You grow up tougher when you have a lot of stuff going on, but you somehow or another just, I think when you're young and you have these kind of trauma events, you're able to partition it and let it go. I don't think those kind of things had long-term traumatic impact the overall part of not having a mother and a father that were capable of loving you. It's a rejection to a child. It's abandonment. I had jobs when I was, from the time I was nine or 10 years old. I had paper routes. When I was 10, I worked at a Joy supermarket for 25 cents an hour. 
it's probably child slavery <laughs> or, or, or labor laws, I'm sure. And then I would actually go scalp tickets at Georgia Tech. I'd go up and ask people if they had any extra tickets, and then I would go to the other corner and sell them. The face value was at $6. They'd give me a couple of tickets, and I'd go sell them for three, thinking I was really doing well, until I saw somebody else sell them for 20, and I was like, how does that work? But, you know, that's a kind of a street thing. Then I would also go to the racetrack, and that was a two-mile walk, too, down Marietta Street in Atlanta, which was not the most secure place in the world. But I would walk there 5 o'clock on Saturday, sell popcorn, peanuts, and crackers, actually, and then come home around 11 o'clock at night, walk back. And I saw very quickly that you work, you get money, and you have capability of doing things. When you're really poor and you have no money, you equate it very quickly to working and it's money, which helps some freedom, you know, to go buy a bike or you equated that very quickly. So I recognize as a young child that because you're out of control of your environment, to me, money gave you control. The ability to have money, to be able to eat, have control of whether you eat or not. And so I equated that, and while I didn't make enough money to you know, be able to be on my own, it was a direct connection that I recognized really early on. And sometimes I had to use the money, often I had to use the money to buy us food because we had no money. As a child, I loved my mom. When she was not drinking, she was the sweetest person in the world. You know, she was a cocktail waitress. When she was making money, she was doing fine. and She'd save money. We'd be okay for, you know, a month or two. And then once she got enough money, if she took one drink, she was, she was done. I mean, until she went through all of her money, completely passed out. I never saw somebody drink socially until I was 20 years old where they would only take a drink or two and not pass out. <laughs> so I never saw anything but complete alcoholism in that environment. So that gave me a sense of fulfillment of, hey, I'm, I'm contributing, I'm doing something in a sense of more control. From the time I was six years old, I went to church. I would walk to a Methodist church for, you know, it was probably a half mile or mile, and I didn't miss a Sunday. It was an escape for me. It was such a release out of reality. It was so different. People were nice. And, and of course, when you go to Sunday school as a child, everything looks like it's Leave it to Beaver, the old movies and so forth like that. Everybody's smiling and great and wonderful and all that. And reality is they have problems too. But as a child, it looked like a euphoria. Like I was 10 years old, I went to First Baptist Church here in Atlanta. Some of the people knew that I was from the projects. And so they would take me out along with their kids. And I'd see a family that they were rich in my mind. They had a car, they had a home. They were able to go out to lunch and eat food. And so to me, that was like, hey, there is a better life out there. It was interesting that I basically equated Christians to rich people. I didn't know that until when I was an adult.
And when we come back, we continue with the story of Rick Jackson. And it was interesting to hear him say church was an escape for me. Because most 12 or 13-year-olds, if you're of faith families out there listening, you got to drag that 13-year-old to church more often than not. But for him, it was a sanctuary. And the people were nice to him there. And that they smiled a lot. My goodness, he wanted more of that. When we come back, our American Dreamer series, Rick Jackson's story, here on Our American Story. Turn to our American stories and to Rick Jackson's story of growing up with a mother who was addicted to alcohol and to men. Came to a point after going to eight elementary schools at 13, I wanted to get out of there and foster care was a way out for me. I basically ran away to go into the system. I went through several, about four or five different homes and ended up in a home that was really nice people, Christian family. And I felt like while I was told I was the same as one of the other five children, and I know that was sincere in their mind, I didn't feel that way. And so I, I ran away. The natural instincts for a foster child to have abandonment syndrome and so it's very difficult to trust somebody else and so when somebody says something you immediately distrust deep down that are they really just saying that so as an example them saying they love me as much as any other child I didn't believe I believe they believed it but I didn't believe it and I think most foster children do that I think the ability to totally trust somebody else after they've been abandoned. It's very difficult. It's not that you don't want it. You really do desperately want it. I went back to my mom. That didn't work for after two or three months. Then I went to the Methodist Children's Home. There was about 100 kids there. But most kids went home to some relative for Christmas. And I didn't. So Christmas was a big deal for me as a child because it was the one time a year that you received something. So I went to bed, I was crying myself to sleep, and it was terrible being alone on Christmas as a child. And uh, the next morning, there was an envelope under my door, and it said from an anonymous donor. And there was a $100 bill in it. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I can't believe this. What, who in their right mind won't even tell me who, you know, why would somebody do this, give $100 to somebody they don't even know? It was a very impactful thing. And then with that, you know, I went to go buy a radio or something, you know, for Christmas. And so that, that helped it, but it was, it was um, impactful from the standpoint of why would somebody give to somebody they don't know? because it was purely unselfish, you know. And I, I had never seen that kind of thing. 
When some of the kids came back from Christmas, they didn't get anything. I felt bad. It was my roommate. And I said, hey, let's go down to, I think it was Kmart at the time. We bought him something. And, you know, that's, that's something that always made me feel good, is giving to somebody else. And it was weird. I never, you know, to be broke, you would think, well, I want to save every dime and keep it. I always felt like there would always be more money. I didn't know where, but there would be an opportunity to have more money. And so probably that was the best part of that Christmas, to be honest. I actually enjoyed that part better than buying something for myself. I went to college for one year because I felt like I needed to go to college, but I just ran out of money. So I, I was there you know, a couple of semesters and then got married, bought a trailer. It would cost $6,000, it was $90 a month. It was brand new, so I thought I was in tall cotton there. So. My first job was like four seventy-five a month as a collection agent, collecting healthcare bills for hospitals and stuff. You know, calling people, asking them to pay their bills. I was transferred to Nashville to become a manager and trainee, and I'd been there six months. All I was doing was still just collecting, and I thought I was supposed to be trained to be a manager. But at any rate, so I asked him on Wednesday. I said, what is the record of number of promise payments? And they told me that it was a uh, hundred promise payments in one day. And I said, well, tomorrow I'm going to break that record. And so I come in at seven o'clock. You could call people at seven o'clock in the morning back then and lasted to seven or eight. I made 300 calls and got 117 promise payments in one day. The owner was 65, and to me back then, that was really old. <laughs> Just crotchety guy, but he would demean people in the building, and he would scream at them and holler at them and criticize them in front of everybody. You know, and I'm like, man, I hope that never happens to me because I, I wouldn't take that. But he was always gentle with me because I was a theoretically a rising star, maybe. But one time he would say, now, Mr. Jackson, uh, you know, you need to be a little bit tougher on the debtor. You know, be a little bit more assertive. And I said, okay, Mr. Martin. And then, you know, I'd do that. And then three or four days later, he'd come back and said, now, Mr. Jackson, you've been a little bit too tough on the debtor. And so this had gone on two or three times. And so I go in on a Saturday. I don't get paid to work on Saturday because I'm a manager and trainee. You, you don't have overtime and stuff. I go in on Saturday because that was the way you made it. So. He came by about 9.45 and said the opposite of whatever you told me last time. And I said, Mr. Martin, I'll be glad to do anything you want me to do. I'm confused because sometimes you tell me to be tough and sometimes you tell me not to be so tough. So which one is it? <laughs> and he lit into me. I mean, he just started hollering, screaming because I guess nobody ever. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't take that from anybody. I said, where I'm from in Georgia, we treat people like people, not like animals. And he said, well, just sit back down. I said, I'm going on a break. So in the break room was a phone. I called my wife and said, I'm quitting my job. I mean, it was just one time it happened. And I walked in and he said, we need to talk. And I said, no, we don't, I'm leaving. I had no income, but I didn't care. I figured I'd figure it out.
Found out a long time ago I can't afford my principles, but I do it anyway. So if it's on principle, I'll stick with it. So that Sunday, I drove down to Atlanta, got me a Sunday paper, and started looking for a job. By Wednesday or Thursday, I had a job. I had to pay to get the job. It was $600 to get a job that was paying $475. And you had to pay the agency that found you the job. There was an ad in there about working as a personnel consultant agent like that. So I go and interview for that job, and he didn't want me because I didn't have a degree. And I said, uh, well, if somebody had a degree, what would they make? And he goes, about $750 draw and about 40 or 50% commission. And I said, well, what if I work for no base and 33% commission? Would you let me work here? And he goes, well, yeah, I don't think I can lose on that. Yeah, sure. The first month, I made $1,400. My previous job was like six fifty, And the owner wasn't spending any time on it. He was having some financial problems. And I basically said, look, you know, if you want me to, I, I guess I'm gonna have to go get a new job, but if you want me to, I'll just take over the business and take it over myself. And he said, fine. And I said, I'll pay the rent and pick up your bills. I was 21 years old, and that was my first ownership. One of the things that I thought about is, how do you become president if you don't have a degree of a company? And uh, my theory was, I'll just start there. <laughs> you know, if you own your own business, you start as president. And Rick Jackson, a former foster child, went on to take a company public and then to eventually launch Jackson Healthcare, which is the fourth largest healthcare staffing company in the entire country. And we're going to continue with this remarkable story and Rick Jackson's journey from what we would consider success to significance. Because a lot of men and women in this country, as they reach middle age, that halftime part of their life, that's the question. I've, I've gotten the money, I've gotten the material success. What next? What's missing? And we're going to hear that story. And by the way, as always, our American Dreamers series are brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And they help small businesses become big ones by fighting for public policies that will allow them to do that. And I often go around the country talking to school kids about small businesses and about taxes and about what fuels city government and what fuels the teachers' salaries. Where does money come from? And my goodness, we need to understand the lives of small business owners who are trying to grow their businesses and employ people because that's where the taxes come from, folks. They come from jobs. And that's where meaning comes from, too, from work. And so our American Dreamers series, well, that's what we're trying to do. Put a human voice, a human face on the people running these businesses, driving them and growing them. When we come back, we're going to continue our story of Rick Jackson here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with the story of Rick Jackson, our American Dreamer series, and a former foster child who now has around 1,100 employees. Let's continue with the story. You have to fail your way to success. You're just seeing, you know, after 37 years of me working, you're seeing the success part, but you won't meet anybody that's failed more than me, I can guarantee you. But you know, to succeed, all you gotta do is get up one more time than you fall down, so <laughs> this is my one more time that <laughs> over the time I fell down. I have a friend of mine who's chairman of Generous Giving invited me to this seminar and I go, Larry, I don't want to go down people hit on me for giving them money and all that. He said, oh, no, no, it's against the rules. That's not the purpose. The purpose is listening to other people's story that have given generously and the benefit. I go down to listen to stories down there and I'm like a piker in comparison to these stories. I mean. One guy was a missionary, he came back and said, God, if you'll pay me $100,000 a year, I'll give the rest of it away to you. The guy's given away a couple hundred million dollars. So those were inspiring stories and they weren't browbeating him. My friend at General's Giving said, Rick, you need to ask yourself how much is enough? And he said, no, I don't know the answer to that. You don't have to tell me but you need to answer the question, how much is enough? I mean, at some point, do you need any more? And then make a determination to give away the rest of it. I did that and said, this is enough. I call it drawing the finish line. That was not easy, especially coming from my background. You come from the slums, there is no such thing as enough. You know, there never will be enough. We sold a software business and I said, there's the finish line. And it wasn't a huge amount of money in, in, in my mind. But the bottom line is, everything you see here, I'll never spend a dime of. It's going away, it's being given away. So my finish line doesn't even count this asset. We'll do over a billion dollars this year in revenue. And the interesting thing is, I had to realize I'm a steward this is not my money. That's a hard thing to say, hey, this is not mine, I'm not gonna be able to take it with me. The first test that I saw that I might be getting there for this is when the stock market crashed in 08. And I had sold the business in 06, put some money at Goldman Sachs or something like that. So it crashed during that time and I said, well, God, it's your money, uh, you know, if you want to throw it away, that's up to you. Just let me know if there's anything I can do to help. <laughs> and I, had, I knew I had crossed the chasm at that point in time, and I literally did not worry about it. But since that time, the business value has grown so, so much in comparison that it's going to be hard for me in my lifetime to give it away in a responsible way. I did not know how difficult it was to give away money. To do it in the right way. Because there's a lot of times that you can do more harm than good. Solving a symptom, not a problem. Every night I pray for wisdom on how to give and what to give. 
I was talking to a friend of mine. We went to a thing out in Dallas called Halftime Institute, and it's basically for people who have been successful, now it's kind of like, what are they going to do for the rest? You know, that's the first half, what's the last half? The question is, how are you going to move from success to significance? And in our case, we want to move from significance to creating a legacy. And I was talking to Ron. Ron Blue, a Christian financial advisor. I said, you know, I don't know if I'm supposed to go be a missionary or something like that, or involved in nonprofits, whatever. He said, well, personally, I think you just screw that up. <laughs> he said, there's a million people that can go become a missionary. There's only very few people that can create wealth like you can. He said, why don't you just do what you're good at, but just do it for a different reason. So that really stuck with me. By doing that, I can find a thousand missionaries versus me personally going to do it. And so it's a spiritual gift that is personal for everybody. So if you're a good carpenter, instead of becoming a missionary, once you become a carpenter for Christ. I'd always wanted to do something in foster care, and I just didn't know how to do it. And so I was introduced by Ron Blue to a man that had come up with this idea of having churches own the problem of foster care. His view was that foster parents don't have any support and that if a church took it over, they could support the foster family and the foster children, give them respite, babysit, but just give a support. I thought that it was strategically brilliant because churches are already set up to have small groups and they also have a biblical mandate solved of what is an orphan's issue. So we started Faith Bridge out of the ground and we funded 100% up from day one. Tonight we have 218 children in Christian homes tonight because of that starting. Over 60 children this year will be adopted by their foster parents in those homes. There's 500,000 foster kids and one million Christian churches. So, you know, one church, one child, and you solve the foster care problem. One of the things we wanted to do is be an influence to other businesses, to see the benefit that we saw of giving back. And so we formed something called GoBeyondProfit.org. And the idea is to celebrate companies that are doing great things and inspire people to do even more. Basically, that giving back in the community becomes the business norm in Georgia. We have up to 360 people that signed a pledge. And, you know, I went and interviewed Bernie. Bernie Marcus, the co-founder of The Home Depot. And said, you started this way before anybody else did. I mean, when, when did it start happening for you at Home Depot? He said it was in the early 90s. They hardly had any money. And some lady come in and said, my roof is leaking, but I can't afford anything. And some of the people came to him and said, look, if you'll give us the equipment, we'll go do it for her. They did, and he saw how important that was. But then where it really nailed down during the Oklahoma bombing, he calls the store. He wanted to talk to the manager to find out any of our people involved, everybody okay. The manager wasn't there. And he's like, well, where is it? And they said, we don't know. And he said, well, tell him to call me as soon as he gets back. And he calls the other store, they had two stores, and he calls the other one, same thing. He's not there either. So the guy called him back, and Bernie said, where have you been? 
And he goes, well, as soon as the bombing happened, I got a big truck and I just piled pickaxes and hammers and everything else, threw it in the truck and just drove down there because I knew they were going to be needing to hit bricks and stuff like that. And so he said, Bernie, I don't know how much it is. It could be 5,000 or 50. I, I apologize and I'll be glad to resign. And he said and that guy's a multi-jillionaire now because he went really up behind it. But the other guy did the same thing without, they didn't even talk to each other. They both did the exact same thing. And this is not a side of capitalism you hear often, but my goodness, it's out there. And by the way, if you have a business, the idea of going beyond profit is so important. It gives your people purpose. Purpose beyond profit is a fantastic thing. And there's nothing wrong with having profit as a purpose. But it just can't be the only one. And gobeyondprofit.org is the name of that site and what stories you're hearing from Rick Jackson. Our American Dreamer series continues. Rick Jackson's story here on Our American Stories. To hear more stories like this, follow us on Facebook and go to our website at OurAmericanNetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter so that we can send you our best stories every week. More of Our American Stories after the break. story of Rick Jackson in the final portion of the story. And when we last left off, he was talking about the generosity of his friend Bernie Marcus, the co-founder of the Home Depot. When Bernie was there, they kind of gave it a lot of things. When Frank Blake took over CEO, and these are things you learn, and this is the kind of stories I want people to hear about you know, because you never know it otherwise. That's what we're trying to celebrate, these kind of stories. And Frank Blake said that he wanted to have everything related to their business, which is home improvement. So most people don't know this about Home Depot, but every spouse, mostly women, that husband is overseas and within 10 miles of a store, they will take care of the home, period, everything. Every one of the hurricanes, they're there, and they don't even, you know, you don't even know about this stuff. Andy Stanley was my preacher, and he sent an email to Frank Blake a few years ago, and he was in line at Home Depot checking out. The cashier asked the man in front of him, he had a bunch of wood and some bunch of stuff, and he said, as they're taught to do, he asked, well, what's your project you're working on? And the guy said, um, I'm building a casket for my son. <laughs> and the cashier guy said, everything's free. What can we do to help? I mean, just gave it. Didn't ask anybody. The fact that Home Depot's cashier did not have to ask anybody and they felt empowered to do that says the culture is really broad and deep in that company where they 
They had been given permission to do that without asking anybody. This was not a manager, this was a cashier. To me, I think that's where any company should be releasing the power of the people and the people that can make decisions on the front line. You know, is an advantage of a small company. I mean, a small company, the decisions are, you know, nanoseconds almost compared to a huge company. But the fact that you can make the elephant dance, if you can have a company like Home Depot have the cashier make a decision to give away something to a customer in a, you know, probably one of the worst times in their life, speaks a lot. And I guarantee you that guy's gonna go tell everybody in the world. I mean, they'll make tons of money off that story. You know? so, and that's not the reason they did it. So Andy sent that to Frank, and because uh, he was a church member, and then Frank shared that story with their national meeting. And so from that time on, every week, they have a video story of somebody doing good for somebody else like that. And so it's within that culture. To me, if I had heard this story back in you know, early on in the 90s, I would have started doing corporate philanthropy a lot sooner. I just didn't know anybody did that. I, I, I never connected giving with that, with a company. I always separation as a giving was personal to me, not company-wise. Business is looked down very negatively. You know, Hollywood demonizes businesses, you know, they're evil, all that kind of stuff. So one of the things we wanted to do is to highlight what companies are doing. I mean, by the very nature of giving people jobs and all that, they're doing good, but, but they're doing other things that nobody knows about. Rick's also producing movies that bring light to a media landscape that's usually dark. 90 Minutes in Heaven had 10 million copies sold where this guy discusses that he died, went to heaven, and for like 90 minutes was declared dead on the scene and then came back alive. So the movie was about that story. We wanted to have a premiere. We had it at the Fox, which is a grand place. The Fox has, what, three or 4,000 seats or something like that. Personally, that's where I went as a child. My mother would drop me off at the Fox Theater for all day long and then say that they were going to pick me up at a certain time. If they didn't show up, I'd have to walk two miles back home at night in downtown Atlanta. So I called up the head of DFACS. The Division of Family and Children's Services who oversee the state's foster care system and said, look, I don't know if this is legal or not, but would you guys like to come and have the kids to be there with the foster parents? And so he goes, well, I don't know if it's legal or not, but I'm not gonna ask anybody. We're just gonna do it. And I said, what do you think it's something they'd like? And he goes, I've never been to a premiere. I would imagine most people would enjoy going to a premiere. And I mean, we had a guy that was in Star Wars and Kate Bosworth and Fred Thompson. It was really cool. So we had 1,700 kids there, 1,700. They were all in the balcony. And I was looking up in the, the balcony. I knew I had only five minutes to give this speech, and I really didn't care about anybody else but the foster kids there. And so it was difficult to come up with only five minutes to tell kids. The other thing is, it's very difficult for me to 
speak to kids because I get so emotional and I don't want to be emotional. You know, when you're coaching, I learned in coaching Little League in the 80s that when you go up to a kid that's hurt, you don't go up with a frown on your face. You go up with a smile like you're going to be okay. You can't be sitting there crying, you know, because they'll think they're dying. So it's very difficult to talk, but basically I said, look, uh, everybody else, excuse me for a second, I want to talk to the kids. It was, it was tough. Uh, I was trying to encourage them and basically I wanted to tell them it wasn't their fault. That, you know, they're put in a situation, they don't have parents. You know, I basically said, it is not your fault. And I said, sometimes, you know, what I found is that while earthly parents are not capable a lot of times to address our needs. I've turned and had an earthly father. I had a father in heaven that I basically said, this is going to be my father from now on. And so, which is a lot easier to deal with than imperfect human beings. So, I mean, that kind of realization makes you feel like you have that hole plugged in your life where you have a father. If you don't have parents, that's, a, that's difficult. Or if you had bad parents, it's even worse than no parents in my, you know, in my opinion. So people that are abused verbally or abandoned and neglect, those are more difficult in my mind than having no parents at all. On Christmas every year, we give, going back to the $100 bill, Every year since that, I would at Christmas give $100 to all of our employees, every, like forever. And a long time I didn't tell them, I just said, you know, here's part of the Christmas bonus, hope you enjoy it and so forth. But now we do the same thing with kids. Uh, we give them a letter that I wrote, uh, sit up here one Saturday and cried for three hours writing this letter about, uh, what happened to me uh, when I got an anonymous $100 bill. And so in dedication, we give it out anonymously to them, to, to a lot of kids. And so um, we also have kids here. Our people go out and shop for a bunch of toys and then give it to the kids. And then we have orphanage that has a lunch with us. We serve them lunch, give them specific gifts and so it's a great day because I love kids and watching them being happy. We have Santa Claus here and, you know, they get a bunch of gifts and we have crafts and games. But it's sad because here are kids that don't have a family and that's hard. Um, but it's mostly happy because I'm you know, we're doing what we can to help them out. I just remember being there. And great job, as always, to Alex and to Joey. And my goodness, that kind of emotion, well, it defies the typical caricature of the media. Because the people who found businesses in this country, they're people, they're human beings. And they endure all kinds of trials, have all kinds of responsibilities and pressures. And then let's not discount that they have to live with all the things we all have to live with, including tremendous trauma. I 
And my goodness, the wounds we endure when we're kids, especially the kind Rick had to endure, they never go away. You're hearing a man decades and decades later recalling these things as if they happened yesterday. And by the way, later in life, Rick Jackson tracked down his father and discovered a sad and lonely man who would drink himself to death a year later. And perhaps the most extraordinary part of his story, he reconciled with his mother in her final years. He told her, you'll never see your grandchildren if you're drinking. And it worked. My kids never saw her like that, Rick told us. Never saw that mean, drunk thing. Rick brought her a condo and saw to her needs until the end. The psychiatrist and everybody else said, why are you taking care of her? Rick's response, if not me, who? And by the way, my favorite part of this entire story is Rick recollecting that $100 bill that a random stranger gave him. Someone he didn't even know. Why would someone who doesn't know me give me a hundred bucks, he thought. It was impactful, Rick said. It was purely unselfish. I'd never seen that kind of thing. And this is what fuels this man to give so generously and in such an impactful way to so many. Rick Jackson's story, a remarkable American dreamer's story. And by the way, go to gobeyondprofit.org. If you're a small business owner, a business owner, if you've got the money and you're running a business, think about doing this. Go to gobeyondprofit.org. Rick Jackson's story here on Our American Stories. Mm -hmm. 